US and UK may have been somewhat aligned when it came to political ideology in the 1980s, but there's no doubt we were on very different creative tracks when it came to filmmaking and marketing. Reagan's Republican agenda may have seemed unusual in its criticism of big government and the dangers associated with how politics shouldn't interfere with the lives of the general public and the opportunities that were open to them, but his rhetoric was a 100% American dream. Not unlike the current President of the United States, Reagan was someone who spoke directly to the common man, referencing a government that should work with us, not over us. But he was also clear that his deal would only be profitable for those who were willing to put back into the system too. For Thatcher, the party line seemed a lot clearer. She too wanted a greater focus on family values, economic opportunity and the ability of the individual to prosper in a capitalist environment. The difference was, she didn't have an American dream or a Hollywood smile to sell it with. Throughout her premiership, Thatcher wasn't just seen as someone who was unsupportive of the common man, but as a leader who was actively working against him. Her legacy is that of a Prime Minister who crushed the working classes underfoot, leaving behind a trail of poverty, destruction and broken lives. So it's probably no surprise her government was so well targeted by the popular culture of the 1980s. Thatcher was painted as a tyrant, a bully, a dominating schoolmistress who ruled her party with an iron fist. In the TV satire-spitting image, which brought the politicians and celebrities of the day to life using caricatured puppets, she was depicted as all these things, as well as having distinctly male traits, from the way she dressed to the way she, well, pissed. Ah, oh, Hazeltine. What are you covering up this week? I I'm afraid it's the old A-bomb test, your imperial consciousness. Well, I hope you come up with something better than that Belgrano nonsense. Absolutely, your wonderfulness. I put out the following statement. The servicemen in the A-bomb test in the South Pacific were issued with the appropriate clothing. Sunglasses, Hawaiian shirts, baggy shorts and flip-flops. Splendid. Oh. I don't know about you, but I never seem to be able to go when she comes in. Well, I know the feeling. But apart from Margaret Thatcher's piss, something else was in the water back in the early 1980s that would define much of the era for the British film industry. As has been documented in previous episodes, moral panic was nothing new by now. But in 1982, the political right and their supporters had something new to focus their fury upon. The arrival of home video in the UK brought with it a demand for content that couldn't or wouldn't be satiated by the big studios, who were worried about what VHS and Betamax meant for their theatrical business model. So, when British entrepreneurs started setting up their own distribution for movies on tape, many looked to lower-budget filmmakers across the globe who weren't being listened to by the MGMs, Paramounts and Warner Brothers of the world. But going up against the big boys with all their brand recognition and marketing power was no small task. And with growing concern around the graphic content of those lower budget releases, distributors would need to be smart about how they sold their wares. With British tabloids like the Daily Star, the Daily Express, the Daily Mail and the Times all piling into the debate around how home video was, quote, giving youngsters a chance to see some of the most horrific and violent films ever made, didn't take long for the political and religious elite to start taking aim at this burgeoning new industry. By 1982, the video nasties debate had truly started to grip Britain, and what had initially started as a newspaper debate had spilled into daytime television, evening news bulletins, and eventually Parliament, where a combination of religious sanctimony and political ambition came together and eventually gave us the Thatcher-backed Video Recordings Act of 1984. The government, in collusion with moral crusaders like Mary Whitehouse and BBFC secretary James Furman, had set themselves up as the guardians of taste. Lists of films deemed inappropriate for human consumption were passed around by the Department of Public Prosecutions, while police and other public services were used to ransack small businesses and destroy tapes that may or may not have fallen foul of the act. And in addition, movies were cut to ribbons just to meet its largely subjective guidelines. 
On the plus side, though, demand for the kinds of films that were being paraded round as examples of the downfall of British society and described in lurid detail on the pages of our tabloids was now so high that it was giving birth to a new type of cinema. And with that came new tropes, new rules, new opportunities and new film marketing. In a future that grows ever closer, the fate of our Earth will lie in the hands of one man, a solitary warrior of great courage. His name is Dojin, and he is called the Finder. His enemies will emerge from the underworld to test his strength. Yurok, the Cyclopean warlord of the One-Eyes. The assassin Baal. Half man, half machine. And Jared Sin, leader and mastermind of the sinister renegades. They will utilize their cruelest weapons. They will exploit their most mysterious powers. As they create an epic non-stop action adventure movie that will challenge your senses. Destroy your boss. destruction of Jared Sin. While films like Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left, itself among the films labelled as nasties, echoed the marketing techniques of 1950s sci-fi and William Castle, the VHS releases of the 1980s would take extravagant claims and marketing artistry to a whole new level. With more VCRs per person in the United Kingdom than anywhere else in the world, home video rapidly became a playground for innovation in movie art, as distributors battled for viewers' attention on crowded rental store shelves. Artists like Renato Cesaro and Enzo Ciotti were elevating foreign imports and other features that would have never seen the inside of a UK theatre, with incredible hand-painted artwork that promised impossible guns, explosions, graphic violence and impossibly voluptuous females. And with key art for a slew of 80s movies that included The Stuff, Kindred, Return of the Living Dead, A Nightmare on Elm Street and Night of the Creeps, not to mention his now iconic work on The Evil Dead, British artist Graham Humphreys was one of the designers who had truly defined how British genre film marketing looked in the home video age. Speaking to Adventures in VHS in 2012, Graham told me that back then it was clear the US and UK were in a very different cultural space and that this was something you could see reflected in the film marketing of the day. The UK market was definitely different to the American market. Uh, certainly the, the, the music at the time was very different um, from the American audience and the UK audience I think really that was really how that happened that um, they felt that culturally there was a difference in, in the way the art would work in America and the way the art would work in the UK really my first love was the really old stuff the stuff that you know I didn't grow up with stuff that I knew happened from before I was born it was just a question of trying to take that aesthetic from then and bring it up into what, what was the current sort of a market at the time and you know People look at the Evil Dead and uh, uh, think of it as a quintessentially 80s uh, a thing. And for me, it was always a pastiche of the sort of 40s and 50s. And my, my head was most definitely in that era when I was actually creating it. And that, that's really what I was trying to do with it. Uh, uh, of course, 
you know, its whole feel and texture and the, the, the idea the film was made in the 80s anyway locates it uh, fairly in that era. But, um, you, you know, you could take an illustration which may function fantastically for a, a, a film from the 80s, yet somehow if you relate it to a film which is current, then suddenly it's no longer of the 80s. It's suddenly something for now. I mean, it, say, for instance, Raiders of the Last Ark, and then you look at the body of work, you know, from somebody like Drew Shrews and or peak and you go back and look at the previous campaigns and all the previous jobs they've done um and you think well you know are they of an era which is older than that yet somehow they capture that particular era so it really does depend on the film and um uh, uh, um and really you know the perception of everything that's going on around it some might say that humphreys did for british movie posters what legendary spielberg collaborator drew struzan did for american audiences but as Humphrey says, it was the influences of the past that were important to bringing film marketing into a new era. As mentioned, when it came to the home video market, a big part of that was being as big, bold and shocking as you could be to entice people to just pick up the video. So once again, it relied on somewhat old-school tactics, but brought up to date for the modern market. And if Humphreys was doing for home video artwork what the likes of Struzan had done for more traditional cinema marketing channels, so too were their modern-day Hitchcocks and Castles looking to take advantage of the opportunities that VHS and Betamax had provided. Charles Band was one such pioneer, who followed in the footsteps of his father Albert as a director-producer and came to prominence in the mid-1980s as the man behind Empire Pictures and later Full Moon Entertainment. Having set up Charles Band Productions in the 1970s, Band clocked up a healthy set of producer credits before forming Empire Pictures in 1983, a company that would give birth to films like Zone Troopers, Dream Maniac, From Beyond, Troll, Arena, Dolls and Robot Jocks, as well as franchises like Trancers, Reanimator and Ghoulies. Jonathan is having a housewarming party. Whoa! What do you guys want to do? Well, we could play hide and go seek. <laughs> yeah. What about Trivial Pursuit? Yeah. It's yeah. a poker. Yeah. <laughs> I got an idea. Still ritual. Yod he bow he. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself. Hey, knock it off. Come. I order thee. In the name of the most holy trinity. Come. I order thee. Well, that was fun. No, no, wait, I, I need to dismiss the spirit. So do I. Where's the bathroom? Upstairs. <laughs> Unfortunately, there will be some surprise guests. <laughs> they have very bad manners. And they have no respect for privacy. Wake up the neighbors. What the hell's in there? And they never take no for an answer. Oh, man, that chick is really a screamer. <laughs> Goons, once they show up, you can never get rid of They'll get you in the end. A movie that was in development at the same time as Joe Dante's much more expensive mini-monster movie, Gremlins, 
Ghoulies is a great example of how Band was able to use great marketing to sell a, frankly, subpar product. Carefully swerving a lawsuit from Warner Brothers around supposed similarities to Gremlins, Ghoulies arrived with a trailer that seemed to be on almost every tape you rented back in 1985. It also came with a set of standees and posters that anyone who visited an independent retail store back then will have had burned into their brains, featuring one of the titular demons emerging from a toilet with the tagline, They'll get you in the end. The part where this gets clever, though, is that Ghoulies had actually shut down production before being completed, allowing Gremlins to get to the market first. This meant that when it was finally released, Band knew he needed a gimmick to sell the movie, and the concept of his mini-monsters emerging from the toilet to bite unsuspecting shitter-sitters in the end seemed perfect. But according to director and co-writer Luca Bercovici, that one shot in the movie which became the key art for the film was very much an afterthought and nearly didn't happen. It was also part of what he refers to as the marketing genius of Charles Band. In a 2015 article for Dazed, Bercovici says, There is a lot of stuff that never made it into the movie. As I said, we were coming up on the spot with stupid things they could do. We had a scene where a ghoulie vomited and we put vegetable soup in his mouth and made him chuck it up. And the toilet scene was one of those moments. It was done without thinking. But you look at it now and you think, yeah, of course, that is the poster moment but it wasn't intended that way by anyone on the set. Band had also extended his empire beyond, well, empire, with a VHS distribution company called Wizard Video, which quite literally existed to find marketable, homegrown and international grindhouse movies like I Spit on Your Grave, The Driller Killer, The Headless Eyes, Pink Flamingos and even The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and wrap them in a big, bold piece of box art and push them out into the world. Wizard Video invites you to take the total terror test. We offer you Dream Maniac, another wizard release produced exclusively for video and headless eyes. Can you stand the intense horror, the explicit action, the gruesome gore? No movie theater could possibly exhibit these nightmarish tales. Like our first made-for-video feature, Breeders, this is entertainment designed exclusively for enjoyment in the privacy of your own home, where the light switch is only a step away, and the pause button and give you a chance to recover from some of the most terrifying horror scenes ever produced. But whether it was for Empire or Wizard, the one thing that tied all of the films together was the strength of the marketing. Like Castle, and of course, legendary B-movie mogul Roger Corman, Band knew exactly what it was about his films that would sell, and understood how to combine art and copy in a way that was perfectly tailored to his target market. And he wasn't the only one out there doing great work. By the late 1980s, it seemed like every big box video release, on British shelves at least, came with a stunning piece of artwork and a show-stopping tagline. In fact, Corman himself had a few of his own, including 1986's Chopping Mall, which was put out by his New Concord distribution company. I spoke to Chopping Mall director Jim Wynorski, who told me a little bit about the creative process that resulted in not only the poster art and tagline, but the title of the film itself. Under the original title of yeah. It was a theatrical failure, and it played several locations and did very little business. And Roger Corman said it was a uh, good film, and uh, he brought it back, and we were looking at it, looking at it, and saying, "What? What did we do wrong?" And the consensus was that we needed a new title. And the guy that changed uh, light bulbs in um, the 
garage, call it shopping mall. And uh, Roger and I looked at each other and I said, that's a great title. And then I shouted out, where half off is just the beginning and where shopping costs you an arm and a leg. And from there it just took off and we, we changed the poster and it was a very big success after that. And of course, if we're talking about VHS pioneers with an eye for good marketing, you can't talk about Roger Corman and Charles Band and leave out the inimitable Lloyd Kaufman. With his partner Michael Hertz, Kaufman founded Troma in 1974, but it was in 1985 when the company exploded thanks to movies like The Toxic Avenger and Class of Newcomb High. And, as Kaufman himself told me, it was Troma's willingness to not only embrace VHS, but see what the studios feared most about it as a huge marketing advantage. And that gave it some of its biggest successes. If one is propelled by the love of cinema, one can embrace uh, new technology and one uh, has a good relationship with one's fans. The big media conglomerates, uh, uh, they hate innovation. When VHS came in, the uh, giant evil conglomerates tried to kill it. And we uh, saw that this was great, that people could make copies, that people could share art, that... uh, that uh, the democratization of film could be uh, propelled forward. And uh, so we immediately embraced the VHS. At that time, home video was thought to be something for uh, self-improvement tapes and music videos. It was not determined that, holy cow, you could actually put movies on VHS and make a pant load of money. And uh, Toxic Avenger proved that not only could you put movies on, but you could put obscure movies with uh, hideously deformed creatures of superhuman size and strength, like the Toxic Avenger. You could put that on VHS and sell uh, half a million VHS copies at 60 pounds apiece. So we went in there, we saw it right away. Not only did home video breathe new life into movies, it created a whole new marketing platform for them. Being a film fan in 1980s Britain was tough. Everything in 1980s Britain was tough. But beyond the tabloid fury, political posturing and moral madness, home video had given us a cause for celebration. Artists like Graham Humphreys had helped set the visual benchmark for home video, while filmmakers like Roger Corman and Charles Band pushed the envelope on what could be said that would excite audiences. And with visionaries like Lloyd Kaufman, VHS continued to disrupt the marketplace and show the big boys that taking a risk with your marketing strategy can sometimes pay off. Some people see the video nasties era as a terrible moment in British history, a time where creativity suffered at the hands of politics and religion and where chaos and censorship ruled. And while all of that is true, there is some comfort to be taken in the fact that despite all this, home video and the pioneers who embraced it gave us so much. In addition to the directors and films that we might never have heard of without it, VHS thrilled us, excited us in all new ways. We may have looked to the US with a jealous eye, But in the era where it often took six months for a film to make it from American to British shores, there was always something else to rent instead. And the way those films were sold to us was often magnificent. Why do they call you action anyway? I think I should get Now I got you. He's a cop who carries no weapon. This Jackson is so vicious, we don't even let him have a gun. He's a maverick who answers to no one. You might tell that boy's arm off. He had a spear. <laughs> He's a man who's no talk. I bet I can make you change your mind. And all action. How do you like your ribs? The indefatigable action, Jackson. <laughs> the one big fella. 
some action. You haven't learned your lesson? Teach me. You sure could teach Mr. T a thing or two. With Reagan's America riding high on capitalism and everyone apparently singing from the same song sheet, the country was experiencing its very own revolution in film and film marketing, but on a much bigger, brighter stage than in the UK. Reagan had made clear his plans to bolster business by taking down unnecessary bureaucracy and government interference with business, and the result was a more buoyant, confident economy that encouraged new ideas and reaching for the stars. As you'd expect for a president made by its very own studio system, Hollywood thrived under the Gipper's administration, but all of this was at a very corporate level of success that favoured studios. Unlike in the UK, where big movies had to be imported and entrepreneurship was the preserve of the rental store owner, small distributor or dedicated artist, big studios like MGM, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox and Paramount were growing fast, spending big and pulling in massive profits. Of course, this was largely the result of an industry that had been established over many decades, but it was also because it was experiencing new levels of success thanks to a new era of summer blockbusters that had begun with movies like Jaws in 1975 and Star Wars in 1977. It was the perfect time for a president like Reagan, and with greater deregulation and tax cuts encouraging an already thriving film and TV business, Hollywood saw things go from good to great. The industry became more profitable and more productive, creating more jobs and giving studios and networks more freedom to grow. But according to Chris Jordan, in Movies and the Reagan Presidency, Success and Ethics, this came at a price. With more money, studios and networks had more power. And with deregulation, this power could go more or less unchecked when it came to company ownership, mergers and acquisitions. Recognising the synergies to be gained through cooperation, writes Jordan, the cable and filmed entertainment industries fostered cross-ownerships through movie studio investment in basic cable services and negotiated contracts that provided cable with exclusive access to Hollywood's latest hits. ABC premiere presentation. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy take off on the Starship Enterprise and encounter the unknown and the unexplainable. Secure all stations. Systems overloading hunter. Captain, we've been seized by a tractor beam. Get ready for the unexpected. The ultimate human adventure. Star Trek, the motion picture. 
So again, unlike Britain, which was celebrating the arrival of a fourth TV channel, scratching around for anything it could put out on VHS and eagerly awaiting the next US import in cinemas, American audiences were drowning in more channels and choice than ever. However, this rapid growth in the amount of content available and a broader, more corporate approach to filmmaking came with another catch, as films became less focused on plotting and character development and more concerned with the big idea. Hollywood had known for a long time that if you keep things simple and make it clear to people exactly what they're getting from a movie, it can put more bums on seats. And back in the early 1970s, this approach had been defined by the then ABC television programming executive, Barry Diller, under the name High Concept. Charged with creating shows that could easily be summarised for audiences in 30-second TV spots, Diller focused his approval on projects brought to him that could be sold in one sentence. This led to a slew of hits for the network, including TV movies, and an approach that was quickly adopted by Hollywood as a way of vetting potential scripts and proposals. This is a story about two men. They competed for the same job. One was white, the other black. <laughs> One liked to talk a lot. You said, uh-huh. The other was shy as a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. hey, rookies gotta stick together. Our story is about how they came to know each other, fight each other. I'm gonna whip you, Sayers. But you gotta be at your best. And help each other. The tough, tender, and true story of Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. What High Concept allowed was an easy mechanism for scriptwriters to get their ideas across to busy studio bosses who apparently only had time to absorb a potential synopsis in one or two sentences. It was a pitch-friendly way of gauging whether a script was dumb enough to have mass appeal and recognise the ways in which audience consumption habits were changing in an era where more choice made it harder to reach them. From a marketing perspective, though, High Concept was also a real golden goose because not only did it provide a quick and simple mechanic for market research, it gave you a line of copy that could inform your whole marketing campaign, as well as what you wanted to focus that campaign on, and even if there were any wider opportunities. So, for example, you might start out with Teenage Boy discovers he's a werewolf and gains high school popularity as your high-concept idea. And from there, what have you got? Well, you've got a title people can grab hold of straight away in Teen Wolf. And to bolster that premise, you might then say... Michael J. Fox discovers he's a werewolf and gains high school popularity. So now you've added in one of the biggest cells of the film in its lead actor, and you've given your art director a poster to work on. And what about if you're hoping the film might come with some product placement opportunities, let's say for Adidas or Nike? Well, how about Michael J. Fox discovers he's a werewolf and gains high school popularity through basketball? From this point, you've got a pitch-friendly idea that can be sold to a studio, an investor, an actor, an advertiser, a brand, and an audience, as well as a starting point for your tagline, poster, trailer, and even the merchandising opportunities that the film might come with. And if you go back and revisit the actual trailer that they put out for Team Wolf, you'll notice it follows a very specific three-act structure that aligns with that high concept. Michael J. Fox is an awkward teenager, Michael J. Fox finds out he's a werewolf, Michael J. Fox becomes a popular teenager. For Michael J. Fox, life hasn't been easy. Hello? Hi. I'm going through changes. His voice is changing. Give me a keg of beer. Is there anything wrong with me? He's got hair on his chest. He stopped being a boy. What do you think about to get worked up? At last, he's become... Scott? 
English speaking. Now open this door right this minute. A wolf. An explanation is probably long overdue. Yeah, an explanation? Look at me. Look at you. He's always wanted to be something special, but he never expected this. Teen Wolf. He's got style. There's something different about you. Did you change your hair? He's got class. Wolf person. He's got hair all over his body. Wolves aren't supposed to be shy. He's a wolf in teen's clothing. And tonight is his night to howl. Teen Wolf, a new comedy with Michael J. Fox, star of Back to the Future. In his book, High Concept, Movies and Marketing in Hollywood, Justin Wyatt concludes that all of this aligns with Steven Spielberg's assertion that if a person can tell me the idea in 25 words or less, it's going to make a pretty good movie. Wyatt says, Spielberg's opinion relates to the vision of a high concept expressed by other Hollywood representatives, a striking, easily reducible narrative which also offers a high degree of marketability. Critically, of course, films one might consider high concept have been sneered at because of their clear motivation for mass appeal and profit. But when you look at some of the most popular and revered films of the 1980s that fit that category, it's clear to see how they resonated with audiences. For example, three down-and-out paranormal scientists start a business capturing ghosts in New York City. Teenager uses time-travelling sports car to go back to the 50s and ensure his parents meet and fall in love. Wacky Detroit cop is a fish-out-of-water culturally while investigating a murder in Beverly Hills. Female welder and exotic dancer fights to achieve her dream of getting into ballet school. But of course, a clear premise and easy-to-digest narrative concept is one thing, as with the Team Wolf example. But it's how you turn that into marketing, and a film of course, that counts. As Wyatt points out, high-concept films had an inherent ability to hook into audiences and build strong awareness and want-to-see interest. But this was dependent on how visible they were to that audience. High-concept films, he explains, can garner high awareness and then maintain this awareness through a comprehensive marketing approach, including print, trailers, television, commercials, and, to a greater extent than for low-concept films, merchandising and music tie-ins. Now, for anyone who doesn't work in marketing, this is simply what we'd refer to as a campaign, and is exactly the same thing we'd put together to sell any product or service based on the amount of budget we have. Having worked in marketing for about 12 years now, I've sold everything from video games and mobile phones to construction industry products and, more recently, a university. I've run marketing campaigns for film and film festivals too. But no matter what, the process is always the same. You start with a clear concept, then you build content around that concept and create a schedule so that it rolls out across key dates and chosen channels like TV, print, radio and, more recently, social. But the most important part of that work is ensuring that you have a clear idea of your product and how you want it to be perceived by your audience, so that when you go on to make sure it hits them in a sustained way ahead of your launch date, they react to it positively rather than being irritated by it. If your message is overcomplicated, you'll guarantee that it's the latter that will happen and not the former. The high-concept films of the 1980s did the hard work up front. With a film that could already be summarised in a sentence or two, all you had to do was create a poster, a trailer, and any related marketing that got across the message in an effective, sustained way. One that would put your product on the mind and in the mouth of your audience and keep it there. 
And if you're looking for a good example of this, I'm not sure there's a better one than the campaign for 1984's Ghostbusters. There's a new cereal in the neighborhood with owls and ghosts. Tastes real good. Ghostbusters. Marshmallow ghosts. Fruit flavored O's. Ghostbusters taste great with milk and juice and toast. A nutritious breakfast with the ghosts. Ghostbusters. Fruit flavored O's. Ghostbusters was a masterclass in messaging because it had a great premise and a solid brand that could be repeated across print, TV and merchandise over and over again, building an insane level of what Wyatt refers to as awareness and want to see interest. The film was released in the US in the June of 1984, but for UK audiences, as was often the case at the time, there was a six-month wait before it eventually arrived in time for Christmas of that same year. This gave the movie a great lead in time in the States that would get kids excited about the big summer release, but it also meant the studio had a further six months for that to trickle down to non-domestic audiences. Hello, Ghostbusters. Ghosts, they're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. Someone's got to stop them. It's a job for the Ghostbusters. The best, the only. We came, we saw, we kicked it. Ghostbusters, rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. In today's market, with shorter attention spans and, of course, access to illegal downloads, this would almost certainly kill a movie as big as Ghostbusters. But back then, there was less access, so less opportunity to saturate the market with your message. This meant that after the American release, clips of the film, most of the time being the now infamous He Slimed Me scene, would crop up from time to time in places like on Saturday morning TV and late night shows that teased us with moments from movies that were topping the box office stateside. Next up, of course, came the teaser poster with the big bold logo we'd all come to know and love and learn how to draw on the back of our school books with the tagline, who's coming to save the world, dot dot dot, soon. This was, of course, adapted slightly from the US campaign that led with... Coming to save the world. This summer. It was the perfect tease. So when the main poster arrived some time later exclaiming, They're here to save the world, we knew exactly who it was that was coming. By the time the full trailer for Ghostbusters cropped up in British cinemas, audiences weren't just aware, we were ravenous. Brainwashed by the infectious theme song, bedroom walls plastered with stickers from our cereal packets, and listening to the rainbow book on tape on repeat. When you hear this, turn the page. You probably knew as much about the movie as those who'd actually seen it. The Ghostbusters. This is the story of three brilliant professors were once at Columbia University doing research work into paranormal happenings, or, in other words, studying ghosts. And it wasn't just the spread of the official marketing and merchandise that helped Ghostbusters out either. Whether Columbia Pictures wanted it or not, the Ghostbusters brand was out there and being bootlegged by every market stall in Britain. And you'd better believe me and every other kid my age walking around in an unofficial sweatshirt really did not care. And that brings me back to something Lloyd Kaufman told me when talking about the democratisation of film in the 1980s through VHS and how this has influenced his approach to marketing movies. We love the fact that uh, 
people could make copies of our movies. You know, if somebody bought a copy, God bless them. Let them make a, a thousand copies and give it all out to their fans. Why not? We have been fortunate in that we've made movies that express our heart and soul, and we've managed to um, achieve a fan base that is very loyal and very aggressive and very uh, determined to, f to find our movies. So if the fact people might be sharing our films... I'm okay with that. I think the fans will take care of us. You know, the, the majors get all upset. You know, uh, Mickey Mouse doesn't like uh, people putting on mouse ears unless they buy them from Disneyland. And uh, Star Wars doesn't want bootleg the T-shirts. Uh, we're happy. We love that stuff. It's it's uh, it's an advertisement. There are people all over wearing uh, Toxic Avenger and Troma and Sergeant Kabuki Man uh, T-shirts. And if one of those T-shirts suddenly starts making lots and lots of money, we'll put one out. We'll put out the exact same T-shirt, mm. except it will be endorsed by Lloyd Kaufman, of and uh, it'll, it'll make, a, it'll make a, a, a tons of money. Sure. It's free marketing. So is bootleg merchandise responsible for the success of Ghostbusters? Should Columbia Pictures have just put their film out and wait for people to copy it, share it, and start making fake T-shirts that they could then copy? Well, maybe not, but it does raise an interesting point about the relationship between films and their audience. In the case of Ghostbusters, in my opinion, it was the strength of the brand, the content and the merchandise associated with it that made so many of us hardcore advocates of the movie long before we'd even seen it. And that all goes back to the high concept. Starting with the three down-and-out paranormal scientists start a business capturing ghosts in New York City, what do we know? We know ghosts are scary and we don't like them and that a symbol that shows a ghost captured inside a red stop signal signifies safety from them. We know that if New York City, or indeed the world, were under attack from ghosts, we would want whoever that symbol represents to save us. And we know it would be useful if those guys were paranormal scientists who had set up a business specifically to capture ghosts. So, by means of extrapolation from the high concept, we have the basis for a bold poster design, a strong tagline, and most importantly, an all-encompassing call to action. Who you gonna call? A call to action that is then used in the most pervasive element of the whole Ghostbusters marketing campaign, and successfully has the actual target market not only repeating the name of the film to one another, but yelling it at each other over and over again. In movies in the Reagan presidency, Success and Ethics, Chris Jordan also highlights how cross-marketing through music, in the way Ghostbusters did, was something that started in the 1970s with films like Saturday Night Fever, but then truly proliferated in the 1980s. The advent of MTV, Jordan states, proved an effective means of creating marketplace synergies between movies, fashion styles, and music soundtracks. He goes on to cite films like Flashdance from 1983, Footloose from 1984, and Dirty Dancing from 1987 as evidence. But of course, there are a ton of other films you could add into that. From the outset, MTV changed the relationship between film and music, and quickly became a place where movie studios could make music. In addition to Footloose by Kenny Loggins, Take My Breath Away by Berlin, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the News, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, all went to number one in the US and other territories. And more importantly, this meant that their videos, packed with scenes from the films they supported, were given the kind of free airtime that, sure, money could probably buy, but would almost certainly have bankrupted a movie before it came out because of the sheer amount and value of it. And of course, the flip side to this was that not only did MTV mean movie studios were now in the music business, it meant the record companies supporting artists like Michael Jackson, Prince and Madonna, to name just a few, found themselves in the business of making films. 
which of course in turn sold more records. I have something I want to tell you. Yes, Michael? I'm not like other guys. Of course not. That's why I love you. No, I mean I'm different. What are you talking about? From the VHS art galleries that were popping up on every street corner in the UK to the multi-million dollar high-concept merch and music-backed blockbusters that were spilling out of the US, the 1980s was a boom time for movie marketing. But while domestic and global box office numbers had steadily increased over the decade, they would take a significant jump in the 1990s, as both marketing and blockbuster movie making took another step forward. So what were the titles that closed out the 1980s that ushered in this new world? And during this time, how was marketing itself perceived in film? And did that great cultural divide at the start of the decade still exist as new leaders stepped up to replace both Reagan and Thatcher in the US and UK respectively? Join me next time to find out. <laughs>